We pick it up this, was it afternoon? It's so hard to tell these days. We pick it up this afternoon in verse 27. Will you read along with me, please? When Jesus departed from there, there, if you remember, was raising the girl from the dead and uh, on his way, watching a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years made clean. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David! Well, it's just cried out, so I want to give you that feel, right? I mean, we kind of read it so mildly. They're crying out, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, we'll assume with help. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And they went out, behold, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You pray with me, please. Lord, we pray you commandeer our hearts and attention now. That we would be ready, open, and available to receive from you what you have for each of us today. We pray, Lord, for the openness that it requires for us to do more than receive information, but transformation. To do more than just be instructed, but rather to be invented by you. And we thank you that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning even the very intent and thoughts of our heart, God, we pray that you do whatever surgical cutting necessary today. That we could hear you. 
that we could know you, that we could understand you better. Please have your way. Lord, I pray that you would speak to every one of us today. And that today we find ourselves transformed. God, that you know where every one of us are and you know how to speak to us. So, Lord, redeem every second and captivate us from the beginning to its very end, both in width, length and depth. That we would today really understand you better. That we get it. That we get your call in our lives. And that we would follow you as you call us to. And Jesus, immerse me now in your spirit. Fill me to overflowing that you would be seen. And that this would be a supernatural act every second. Color in the black and white. And may we have so much fun in your word even as we seek to have so much joy in your presence. Save today. Revolutionize. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the word always be the authority. Nestled in Matthew's gospel, In between chapters 5 through 7 and chapter 10 are these two chapters. In 5 through 7, if you remember, people had been touched by Jesus. And being touched by Jesus, they came to him paralytic, possessed. They came to him powerless. And in all of the ways that they came to him, they had received a touch from Jesus and were never the same again. And in chapters 5 through 7, if you will, Jesus gives a new believer's message. Who are you now that you're not what you were? In chapter 10, he gives a missionary message. Go out into the world and this is how. In between those two messages, chapters 5 through 7, On this side, in verse 10, are chapters 8 and 9. And in those chapters, at least 12 miraculous events take place. And that's including things like Jesus went from city to city, teaching, preaching, healing. It is so condensed on this point. It's from the sermon of the saved to the sermon of the sent. And in between are these two distinct chapters with a distinct approach and a concerted layout of how he wants to demonstrate those two things to draw a bridge from being saved to being sent in these chapters. It is important to note that amongst the Jewish population, There are two basic ways that a matter is taught. One is by comparison of likeness, and one is by contrast of difference. Sometimes when someone asks, what is something, we simply say, well, it's like this. Or we give it as if it's simple definition, we'll make it clear. Sometimes, to be honest, portraying its opposite helps us to get a better understanding of it. Interesting. Because those same two modes are going to be played out then in chapters 8 and 9. In chapter 8, by the way, we have that comparison of likeness. In the simplest sense, we have it in faith, in fever, and in fury. In faith, because we have the faith of a leper who comes to Jesus, if you are willing. And then, if you will, a centurion who says, Lord, I'm not worthy. And then it's in the fever as Jesus comes into Simon Peter's house in Capernaum, the only house we read as the house, by the way. 
And we read there, by the way, that he goes and a woman, his mother-in-law, is lying sick with a fever. And he touches her hand and pulls her up and she receives healing. And then, interesting, the entire city is fevered, if you will, with the fervor to come to the door. And the entire city of Capernaum then arises and comes to the door of Peter's house so they could receive that touch from Jesus. And then the fury. It is the if you will, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then on the other side, the man possessed or men possessed by the legion of demons. And in all three cases, we see just like the faith of the leper is the centurion, which amazes, by the way, Jesus. Just like the fever of the mother-in-law is the fever of the town desperate to rise up and receive healing, the touch of Jesus. Just like the fury of the storm is the fury, if you will, not only of the natural, but of the supernatural, as Jesus shows power over both. And then we take us to chapter 9, and we see the opposite. The comparison of contrast, if you will. In in chapter 8, if you will, we see the living word's willingness. But in chapter 9, we see the Messiah's mercy. As now, sin becomes the issue to be dealt with. And with that, there's a very pronounced opposition. And it emerges in this. In three things as well, if you will. In paralysis, in the proposal, and then in the process. In the paralysis, we see that as a man was dropped through a roof by four people, we see dropping down so that Jesus could heal him. But Jesus had to do so much more than just raise him up from his physical ailment. He deals with them by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. And there were two paralysis, if you will, because Luke tells us that the power of God was was actually there, was present to heal them, the religious leaders. But they were also paralyzed by pride, if you will. And unfortunately, their pride would keep them paralyzed is where this man would rise up and walk. But then there was the proposal of follow me. And there will be two different groups following Jesus, if you will. There will be like Levi, like Matthew, those who are willing to forsake everything to follow Jesus for Jesus's trail. And then there were the religious leaders again who were seeking to find fault versus following by faith like Matthew did. And with that, there will be confrontations, two confrontations. There will be the religious leaders who ask, why do you eat with tax collectors? And then it will be John the Baptist's crew that ask, why do you eat at all when we fast? Jesus will respond by giving two things in comparison as well, the garments and the skins. And with that, then he tells us there is a whole new process to be left out. Now, all of a sudden, it's no longer just a new wine to be put in an old structure. But now the structure of the traditions isn't going to work for this. And we have to follow Jesus as he gives it to us in accordance with his word and not just the way we've always done it. Interesting, because he walks us then to the process. Have you considered the fact that there were two daughters? There was a daughter, as we know, that was dying and ultimately dead before Jesus gets there and he'll raise from the dead. And there is another woman who the same amount of time that girl had been alive, 12 years, has been bleeding, hemorrhaging. She has had that period of time of the woman for 12 straight years. And with that, Jesus turns to her as she receives her healing and says, daughter, both called daughter, 
And with that, then there are two daughters. And notice the process as we move into our text. There is this raising from the dead. And I believe Jesus wanted to wait until that girl was dead to show us this. Matthew purposely, concertedly puts these things in line in order for us to get this process. Get this with me. What happens is he goes and Jesus on the way to raising the dead purifies, cleanses through the flow of blood. Interesting, that's how this begins, this new wine, this new life that Jesus promises starts this way, that we start out dead spiritually. This is why the old doesn't work. The whole you do it and you perform and maybe it's enough for God, it can't work. And the reason it can't work is because we are spiritually dead and spiritually dead people don't do anything really good. They rot is what they do. And thus, the one who has possession of life must come and give us life because a dead person can't just go clear, grab the defibrillators and go. He has to have somebody else do it. But what brought us to death was this uncleanness that comes through our sin. And notice in this process, what we have is Jesus on the way to bringing and raising the dead purifies and gives cleanliness first, a cleanness first. And in the same way, in our life, we want to go, oh, I want to clean myself up for God, and if I could clean up my act, maybe God will receive me. You're missing the point. Let Jesus do all of the work. As He is giving you life, He cleans you through His blood. And then with that, then, we have these stories to end the chapter on our way, which is the Narlan Bridge, to the Sermon of the Sending we get in chapter 10. And here they are. Notice what they are. First of all, there was a blindness. But that blindness has to be conquered to open their eyes. There, there's two here. But notice, before that blindness is cured, there is a confession of Jesus as Lord. Did you notice that? They say, yes, Lord. Now, Jesus knows, if you will, that they have faith. They've come to him in that faith, but he gives them the opportunity to verbally confess it. And he says, do you really believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. But then there's another matter. A man who is mute, unable to speak, and what we read here is this silence is a supernatural silence. It is a demonic silence. And what Jesus shows us is the ability to properly speak, if you will, especially as God makes it clear in regards to his own kingdom, as he prepares us for sending us into the world, into the harvest. What he tells us is that type of speaking is a supernatural thing. You can't just go into some form of seminary, be fully trained, and be spiritually gifted in the process. You can train a gifted individual, but you can't gift a trained individual. This is the problem. The same way that there are people who are naturally, musically gifted. And it doesn't really matter if you train them. You can tell that they're going to do something musical. Even when they tap according to something or hum or something. I remember Shantae when she was just months old. I would bounce her on my knee. My voice is a lot better. And and I would just sing a pitch and she would match the pitch. It didn't matter where it was. If it was within her vocal range, she was matching it. I'd be like, woo! She'd be like, woo, 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 woo. I mean, it was just happening. And I realized you can't just give that. 
but you can train it. And understand, as Jesus starts to walk us through this process, this is the process in between being saved and being sent. And it starts with this. We need a whole new wine. We need a whole new filling of God. And this new filling is going to move. This is something we cannot say, as long as you really don't do anything, I'm okay. You have to be willing to let God just rip through everything and change us. To make us different people. Are you willing to let God do that? Or are you still setting the boundaries and calling him Lord? And then with it, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open your eyes. But that, I want your confession. And I'm going to open your eyes. And then we're going to tackle this spiritual issue. And then I'm going to open your mouth. And then I'm going to send you. The dangerous thing is when you send somebody whose eyes aren't open or whose mouth isn't open the way God calls them to you, because what you're doing is, if in essence, you are sending an unarmed person into the wolves. And do you really want to do that? So look at it with me as we kind of develop a bit of this. It tells us this in verse 27. When Jesus departed again from this issue of seeing one woman cleansed and another woman raised from the dead. And in the same way in our lives, that same thing, that God really wants to cleanse us. And as he cleanses us through his blood, through the gift of the cross, he wants to give us life. There's the resurrection. Two blind men followed him. Now, have you ever put this picture together in your head? It doesn't say two blind men just cried out. Now, we'll see, by the way, that same situation later on in chapter 22, where two blind men will just start screaming. Here, they're following Jesus. Have you thought that through? What does that look like? Jesus is being thronged by people. I remind you, there is a massive crowd of people, and there are two blind guys that are trying to follow Jesus. And I wonder how many of Jesus' disciples turn around and go, these guys need some help. You realize this is what God calls us to be as disciples. People who love the blind enough that say, if I could just, do you want to go see Jesus? Let me get you to Jesus. Because we realize that's the bit of the harvest. We are looking for the lost. And we are looking for the lost in such a way that they're starving for what only God knows. And they don't. But we don't read here that anyone jumps up. We don't read here that anyone jumps up and escorts. As a matter of fact, the next time in chapter 22, when two blind guys start shouting, it's the disciples who turn around and tell the guys to shut up. Could you imagine? Here are the people that are going to be, that Jesus is going to hand the spiritual baton to, and they're like, hey, stop talking. Stop, you know, shut up. And they're crying for Jesus' help. And they're like, but you don't understand. Jesus is walking by. This isn't time to bother the master. And and it's interesting because it seems to me the two things that the disciples do the most, and this should, strangely enough, encourage us that we qualify, is they, they spend their time stopping people from coming to Jesus and arguing over who would be greatest. Doesn't it seem interesting that those are the things that are recorded the most? By the way, by disciples, they record this. And if you will, in their own confession. Now, Obviously, these aren't things that God wants to keep on us. These aren't qualities that God goes, this is exactly what I was looking for. But he shows us that we could start out there. We just don't have to end there. So these guys are crying out. Now, they're crying out, but it's more than just crying out. They are seeking to follow Jesus, but they're seeking to follow Jesus blindly. Now, it's interesting because Scripture speaks so much of blindness from both a physical and a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual perspective in the aspect of hatred, in the aspect of hating your brother. John makes that really clear in 1 John. 
He tells us, by the way, as well, that a spiritual blindness has happened. Paul does in Romans. A spiritual blindness has happened upon Israel. That doesn't mean God is disqualified or, for that matter, purpose, personally and, uh, and permanently disqualified them. He has a particular time that he's raising up the Gentile church to reach the world. And then he's going to reinstate the Jewish nation to go and do what God's called them to do. Now, hear me on this. As they're crying out, they're not just screaming. They're not just following him. They have a specific title here. It says in verse 27, as Jesus now departed from there, it says two blind men followed him and they were crying out. And the term there is the idea of bellowing. I mean, there's something from their heart that forces you to have an outdoor voice. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. But there are certain times where decorum no longer is an issue. You are that desperate, and these men are desperate. And they cry out, Son of David. Now, the term Son of David, if you will, is mentioned 17 times in the New Testament. Uh, but in the Old Testament, it's only mentioned a few times, and the times it's mentioned is, is sort of running a lineage, making sure you realize Solomon was the legitimate son of David. From Solomon would come you know, Rehoboam, and for Rehoboam, we'd start to see this lineage, and they make sure that it's still continuing in that lineage. But in the New Testament, it becomes sort of a title. It becomes that which, by the way, we look for in this coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, even to this day, the collection of Jewish traditions called the Mishnah still recorded and say that in Sukha uh, 52, actually 52b, it says that the Messiah must be the Mashiach ben David, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, that comes, by the way, from a text in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, which is where we have the story, the narrative of David's life in First and Second Samuel. David is getting older now, and his heart has always been to build God a house. I mean, of all the people in Scripture, he's the only one that God says, this is a man after my own heart. Think of all the people that have served God. And this is the one he gives that testimony. Think of what we could be after. God's stuff, God's blessings, God's peace. There's a lot that God has to offer that's periphery that isn't him. And if I'm after that stuff, there's a danger here because if God were to leave the room, if you will, but those things still existed, would I know it if that's what I was looking for? And in this, please hear me. He says, this is a man after my own heart. And and, and of the things David wants, he says this. I mean, if you would ask Solomon, his son, what do you want? He says, well, I want his wisdom. I feel like I'm a kid and I'm supposed to rule and I'm so ill-equipped for the job. Could you give me what it takes to do the job right? But what is it that David says that he wants? If God were to sit down with David and say, David, what is it you're really looking for? David says, one thing have I desired. And that I will seek after. Notice those two things. It isn't just that he wants it, but he's going to chase it. And truth be told, the the proof of desire is pursuit. I mean, if you really want something, sooner or later you're going to get up and go after it. Or you don't really want it that bad. And, And he says this, One thing have I desired, and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I mean, if God were to sit down with David and say, David, what is the one thing you really want? What's the one thing? Love, power, peace, riches. 
What's the one thing you want more than anything? Purpose? What's the one thing you really want? And David just says, can I just move in? That's all I want. Can I just move in? That's what David wanted. You can see why God says, now there's somebody after my heart. So David, he realizes, man, I'm dwelling in this big, beautiful house of cedar, and God's still pitching his tent outside. I mean, here I am in my nice place. God's still camping. So he goes, you know what? I need to build God a house. So we get introduced to a prophet named Nathaniel, or Nathan, the gift of God. And as we get introduced to Nathaniel, he shows up, and the first thing he does is make a mistake. Isn't it cool to know that even prophets can make mistakes? And this prophet kind of comes in, and understand what the prophet does in essence is he gets really, if you will, he kind of gets charmed by David's passion. It's a very easy thing to do. You can watch somebody, and they have passion, and you can tell they have drive, and, and it's like, it, and you just get so drawn in by the fact that it's nice to see that kind of passion. You don't really step back for a second and go, is this really what God wants? What you do is you just get excited to see somebody excited. And so, so Nathan kind of walks into the scene, and David's like, hey, you know what, Nate? I was kind of thinking. And Nate's like, well, yeah, what, Dave? What's up? And then he says, well, I was thinking, you know, here I am in this nice house. God's in this tent. I think we should, I think we should build him a house. And the thing is like, boy, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, go for it, buddy. I mean, obviously, this is a loose paraphrase. Don't just believe me, but look at it for yourself. That's 2 Samuel 7. And then Nathaniel's on his way, and the guy goes, whoa, 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 Nate, 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 we need to talk. It's a great idea, and it sounds sweet, but we really can't do this. You have to go back and eat some crow now and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I was taken by your passion, but it isn't God's will. And I'll tell you why. Because you're a man of blood, and we're not going to build my house on blood unless it's my own. You're not going to kill people to advance my kingdom like this. Even though what David was doing often was at God's command. That's another religion. He says, this is going to be spread through someone else's blood, through mine. And so with that, if you will, so what happens is, is that he has to go back and go, David, David, I'm really sorry, but please hear me in this. God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. So when it comes to the point where you realize something isn't the way God wants it, well then, well then what is the thing? Now, what is the thing God is blessing? How do you get behind that? And understand, this is what Nathaniel says then. He says this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, ultimately, what God says is, I know you want to build me a house, but Dave, I'm going to build you one instead. That's enduring and eternal but it's going to come literally from your body. He says, when you're old. So you can see David, as he gets older, he's not old. I mean, I, I could see being the kind of king that's like, you know what? I'm not that old yet. I'm not handing the crown over. He says, when you're old, when you're, when you're passing off the scene, get a kid there and I have the right one. Don't worry. It'll all work out. So we're looking for this one who will have this everlasting kingdom from everlasting to everlasting. For which David would say, the Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. That's, by the way, in Psalm 110. And that's, of course, what Jesus will use and say, how does David call this that's going to come from his own loins Lord? No father calls his son Lord unless his ways are from everlasting to everlasting. 
How far does Matthew have to go to make sure you know that this Jesus is this son of David? Well, you're in Matthew, right? Turn to chapter 1 for a second. And I'm going to do just simple, 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 if you will, in the class homework right now. Start reading Matthew chapter 1. Tell me the verse that mentions Jesus as the son of David. Yes. Did you guys get that? The first verse. Matthew wants to make sure you know as, we, as he starts this gospel from the very beginning, this is the son of David. He doesn't go beyond the first verse to do that. Of course, then he'll show us the lineage that shows that Jesus is directly, uh, directly from the lineage. of. then he'll take us all the way down to Joseph in 120. By chapter 12, when Jesus continues to perform his miracles, by verse 23, the people say, could this be the son of David? In chapter 15, verse 22, it'll be the Canaanite woman who says, have mercy who has a possessed daughter, son of David. It'll be two more blind men, if you will. Actually, it's chapter 20. I think it's verse 30. Where they will call him again, son of David. In chapter 21, verse 9, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry, they call him the son of David. When Jesus throws him, he says, the Christ to the religious leaders. So we know they thought so. In Matthew 22, 42, he says to the religious leaders, the, 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 the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, who is he? And the response, the son of David. When these guys were calling on the son of David, they were calling Jesus the Messiah. But they go beyond that. And don't worry, we won't develop everything to this extent. They say that notice their cry back in Matthew 9. Have mercy on us. Now, could you heal us? We're blind, please. Have mercy. I wonder if the news of Jesus dealing with the paralytic caught their ears, that it was more than just the healing that Jesus dealt with their sin. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people go blind, and some of them are a direct result of sin to this day. Some of them come from sexually transmitted diseases, and it was a very common thing in Jesus' day. Nonetheless, they are asking for mercy from the Messiah, but Jesus doesn't just heal them right there. Notice in verse 28, it says, when he had come into the house. The house. Not a house, but the house in Capernaum. My natural assumption is this must be Peter's house. Where, by the way, his mother was healed, from her, if you remember, from her fever. And then the whole city came up to be healed at their door. Their house became a hospital. And then from there, the roof is torn and the paralytic is dropped. Do you remember that? All of that happening in the house, in the same house now with this probably lovely, you know, skylight. Jesus is dealing with. And now in the same place now, these guys come. They have clearly been following him, even blindly. It says, when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. We don't read, by the way, again, any help. There may have been. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you think that Jesus knew that they believed he was able to do this? Why would they ask him to heal them if they didn't believe he could heal them? So why does he ask? Because he gives them a chance to confess. Do you believe I'm able to do this? And their answer is two words. Yes, Lord. So he touches their eyes. Notice he could have just waved his hands. They wouldn't have seen that. 
He could have just pronounced the word. But he wanted to personally touch them. And in doing so, then these men, we read their eyes were open. And then Jesus says, no, don't go tell anyone. How do you not tell anyone? Do you keep your dark sunglasses on? Do you keep walking around and stumbling? Clearly, people are going to notice. But they spread the news all about it. Now, there's a big question on why Jesus would do this. Some even go as far as saying Jesus would use reverse psychology because what he really wanted was for people to actually say something. But can I say that Mark makes really clear, focusing on Jesus' servanthood, that the moment people start telling everyone about it, Jesus can no longer have these one-on-ones with people. Please hear me on this. Because Jesus' greatest success, it appears to me, was not him speaking in front of masses. It was having these one-on-one moments where people were really transformed. And for people to just sort of run around and make it the new hot thing kept Jesus from doing what he really wanted, which was to call his sheep by name, not by group or by height or by race, but by name. Now, as he went out from there, verse 32, it tells us, Behold. Behold means that Matthew was pretty amazed by this. Behold says, yo, check this out. This is crazy. And they brought to him a man. Now, interesting. Notice, don't you find it a bit ironic that in the case of the guys who couldn't see, they came to him. But in the the case of a guy who could walk and see, they brought him to him. I think it's a little strange, except for the fact that this man has clearly a demon influence. This is they brought him to a man. They brought to him a man mute and demon possessed. Now, don't miss this, because Matthew has a very clear way of doing this. And of all people, it makes sense that it would be him. Because, please, please don't miss this. Because Matthew knew what it was like to be hated because he was a tax collector. And in the sight of the people, he wasn't even considered a man anymore. It was so much so that the the Mishnah records this. The verbal traditions recorded, collected 500 years later, still say that a tax collector, of course, couldn't serve in office, couldn't testify in the court of law. But the debate had been concluded that a tax collector was actually incapable of repentance. They said, basically, once you become a tax collector, you're a lost cause. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine someone looking at you saying, because you did this, you're a lost cause. Because this is the choice you've made. Because this is the lifestyle you've come from. Because this is how you got your identity. Because this is where you were. Clearly, you must be reprehensible. There's no possible way to see you fixed. Could you imagine? Well, maybe if it's the case of what you're trying to do is start it with works and you're spiritually dead. But for a God who can come and bring purity and life, that's not intimidating for him at all. So I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what failures stare you in the face. I don't know what weaknesses still are things you embrace. But I can tell you this. My God is bigger. And he's unintimidated by any of those things. So understand, this man cannot speak. I mean, in all the things that Matthew can point out, and by the way, these stories are unique to Matthew. There are going to be other people, and Matthew will actually point out at least in two other occasions, Jesus dealing with mute people. In one case, that they're demon-possessed. In another case, they're simply mute. By the way, just because you're unable to speak does not mean that you're possessed. But clearly here, Matthew puts these stories together in this place. And I kind of get it. These people come. Now, obviously, Jesus is going to ask, do you believe I might be able to do this? Because the guy can't speak. But notice there's no big to-do. 
There's no Jesus getting holy relics and water and waving and ch- chanting Latin, which would have been easy because Latin was what the, what the Romans spoke. You know, I mean, it wasn't like Jesus went and he got all of these crazy things and lit some incense and all this. Jesus just, this demon was a problem. And he says, you're out. And the moment he's out, the guy just starts speaking. As the, as the guy starts speaking, the people say, oh, we've never seen anything like this. Now, listen, listen to this statement and how it correlates with what the religious leaders say. The people, what they say then is, notice it says, the multitudes marveled, and they said in verse 33, it was never seen like this in Israel. I have never seen anything like this. I mean, I've seen religion, and I've seen structure, and I've seen, you know, all the leadership craziness, and I've seen all the guys in their crazy coats waving them, and people kind of shaking like fish. I've seen all of that stuff. I watch the guys pass the bucket 16 times around until they're sure they have enough. Then they take the chains off the doors. I've seen all that stuff. I've seen people clucking like chickens. I've seen all that stuff. But I've never seen anything like this before. Where people came in with genuine needs and were genuinely met at their need. He goes, that's when you know Jesus is in the house. And it wasn't about all of these you know, rituals or rites. It was about getting them to Jesus. And now notice how this plays out. Because they say, this has never been, there's never been a thing like this before. This has been the most clear demonstration of power I have ever seen in church. And the most amazing part is the leaders of the church, what they were saying. Now, obviously, we're talking about synagogues and temples here. But in verse 34, the Pharisees say, well, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Isn't it sad to think that the old wineskins are looking and what they're saying is that the greatest power demonstrated must be demonstrated by Satan? And you know, that still happens to this day out there. There are many walking around blind and they don't even know that they're blind. But if something amazing happens, they just assume it must be. It's like they think that God's impotent. His arms are cut off and he's sort of a wimpy little guy. But Satan, on the other hand, puts on his gloves and you know, haunts houses and freaks people out and makes things stick to the roof and sets things on fire and gives people supernatural strength. You know, and now they're like X-Men, you know, and it's like all of these things. And people want to get, pow- get power from Satan because they think he's got the power. Man, if they got this messed up. And, you know, some of us deal with that, too, because Hollywood's done a great job of portraying Satan as Mr. Buff. And God is sort of like the polite, quiet, little, impy fella. It's like, excuse me, Satan. Jesus, God clothed himself in all of the weakness of man. Listen, God clothed himself in all of the weakness of man. All of the fragility of mankind, and if you will, he took, he made himself as weak as anyone could be, and then he took Satan's best. And he rose up and said, that's all you got. So don't tell me that Satan's got anything. Jesus does call him a strong man. Why? Because he's stronger than us without Jesus. It never says greater is he with him, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I never have to fear anything demonic because the one who occupies this house, they're going to bow to him and confess him as Lord. The Bible makes that clear. Every knee will bow. And if they've got a knee, it's going to bow. And if they've got a tongue, and they clearly do talking, so they've got a tongue, 
they're going to confess, Jesus, you really are Lord. That's why throughout Scripture, every time the demons try to have any kind of conversation with Jesus, the word begging is always involved. But they say, hey, this must be Satan. Now, Jesus is going to deal with this in Matthew 12, verses 25 to 28. So we want to directly address it. We'll get to our last few verses here. It says, then Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. The word, by the way, is the word didasco. We get the word like didactic from it. It means, if you will, transfer of information. And then he went as well, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The word preaching is the word keruso. Please note this. Nowhere in scripture is preaching a bad word. We try to walk around and go, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to preach at you. Yes, you are. Every person preaches. All that means is you're sharing information with the intent of influencing. When Juan and Ati set up their stuff to go tell people about the business they're involved in, they're preaching their business. Because they're, I mean, if they're just doing it to give information, that's a terrible business. They want to influence. Let me ask you, if you're involved in something that you believe to be an awareness ministry, are you seeking to teach or are you seeking to preach? Consider it. You want to just let people know? We live in the information age. We're aware of all kinds of crazy things, all kinds of problems. Or are we preaching? Paul would say, on his deathbed, if you will, waiting in the Mamertine prison for his head to get lopped off underneath, uh, underneath Nero, he tells Timothy, preach the word and do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word means don't just tell him it. Challenge him in it. Let this change you. Let this change your mind. Let this be so much more. Because if it isn't, what we're going to be is big-headed, fat-bodied, impotent people that are more familiar with our couch of comfort than the world of change. I remember before we moved here, I had this dream. And it isn't like I'm like, oh, I have a dream every day. But every once in a while I get something and it really impacts me. And this is one of those. And in this dream, I, I had coached for years. I, basketball was kind of, a, baseball and, and football too, but basketball was kind of the big one. And, and in that, we're kind of in this, uh, we're in this locker room. And in this locker room, I have this big whiteboard behind me. And I've got guys in various states of dress. Some are clearly ready to go out there. Yeah, coach. Yeah, coach. Yeah. And then there are, and this is in more of an American football setting. And some are like kind of half dressed. And some are like kind of just sitting there. And they look like they stepped off the street. And they're all kind of sitting on their benches. And I'm there and I'm drawing X's and O's. And I'm going, all right, you guys, this is the way we win. And I'm so confident of it. And this guy's going to go, listen, you got that. Yeah, coach. Okay. Now this one you're going to go this way. You're right. Yeah, coach. And this one you're going to go this way. And everyone's like, yeah. Are you guys ready? And we're like, you know, you got that hyped up thing. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like we just kept, you know, a friend, you, yeah. And then everybody runs out and takes the stands. And I'm like kind of running out with my clipboard and I'm like stepping out onto the field. And I'm like, what's going on? What am I missing? Because somewhere in all of this, what we were getting is we were getting this idea that we could agree with the play. But somehow we assume that the play doesn't involve us. It's kind of like we're watching television. And what we're doing is we're watching the telly is we're watching somebody going, oh, they should have done that. Right. But we don't even know. We don't even have a set of cleats. We have no boots to put on to jump out into the field ourselves. And we're heroes. But we've never smelled gunpowder. 
and understand that these guys, these are real changed lives. And Jesus is going about and preaching is necessary. He tells us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. We don't just give the gospel, we preach it. The idea of preaching it is, do you want to do something with this or not? Or do you want to just gather information, take your X's and O's? You know what happens when we don't play? We become critics. Have you noticed that? I find that the people who have the biggest problems with the way people evangelize don't evangelize. And the people who are quick to try to find fault and, and, you know, they have their kind of websites where everybody's of Satan, you know, and everyone's doing it wrong because they've somehow they've quoted this and it must have come from this book or whatever. It's amazing how those people aren't out actually doing it. They've got the, they sort of figured out that they've got the playbook, but the playbook instead of actually so you can enjoy the joy of being out there was actually so that you could kind of use it against other people. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They weren't going, well, how do I do it? Now, please understand, I'm a real selfish person when it comes to things like sports. So if I get the chance to play, I want to play. I and mean, we, get, we get to that place where we're going to go out and do something. Man, if I get a chance, now these days it may be a detriment to the other guys playing, but I want to be out there because there's something really cool about being among the guys that you're trying to do this place, and you know what's going to happen. As a, a secondary school teacher for years, we had, well, in America, they have four years of secondary school. You wind up at about 18 by the time you're done. And that last year, they call seniors. And in those seniors, they would have what's called a senior trip. And what that means is, it sounds simple, the seniors go on a trip. And in America, we chose that particular year. I mean, they would go 20, 30 miles, 40 miles south to like Santa Barbara. We decided we were going to go to Central America. And as we go down to Central America, I have, if you will, my basketball team with me. Minus one guy, because actually our point guard was actually a lot younger, so he wasn't going to go on our trip. Point guard's the guy who usually does the ball handling at the front. And so we go down there, and, and we see a basketball court, and I'm like, guys, you want to go play? And they're like, well, who's our fifth? I'm like, you really? Now, please understand, I was a lot younger, a lot thinner, and a lot healthier back then, and probably infinitely better in my head. And I'm about, you know, reality. But anyways, and, you know, and I'm like, let's go out there. And so I have these guys. But the cool thing is I knew their plays because though I had done them, I'd actually practiced with them. And so we got out there and there all of a sudden these five guys come walking out on the court. We're going to go and scratch a game, which means we're going to just invite a bunch of total strangers to a game. And they're all tall and thin and roughly my height. And there's a guy that's sort of older with a tie standing on this side. And I'm like, sure, this would be great. Let's do that. Innocent game. About two, three plays into the game, the guy on the side is screaming. Now he's screaming in kind of Creole, so Creole wasn't as easy to understand, and it's certainly harder when a guy's screaming it. And, and, and he wasn't screaming at us, he was screaming at the guys, and we're just kind of trying to figure out what in the world's going on. It turned out that they were the semi-pro Olympic team, and here we were a bunch of high school kids, if you will, and the old guy, that was out there playing, and we were winning. But the difference was they were all really gifted players, but they didn't know the plays together. So they were all trying to be heroes. And what we had, well, we had these great plays, but the plays were plays that we all knew. So it was kind of like you didn't have to look because you kind of knew. You could go four, and as you go four, you kind of know where guys are going to come. And you could turn and you could pass this way without even looking because you knew the guy was going to be there because you were part of that. 
Could you imagine what that would be like if we were out there out on the streets and we were sharing, but I just kind of knew this is kind of where we're at. I mean, we have those moments where I could turn to someone and go, hey, I need an armor bearer, and they know that means I want somebody praying while we share. And you turn to someone else and you just kind of know they're going to pick up the ball. I'm going to go on. I could pass here, and I just kind of know at that point. Oh, here it goes. Fanny's going to jump right in. You watch this. Watch how she jumps in. Ooh, listen to her goal. You watch it. All right, now Bruno, watch how Bruno closes the deal. Because this isn't going to just be sharing information. We want to preach. We want to go and say, hey, you need Jesus. Not just agreeing. You need him. Because if you don't have those kind of people beside you, be careful if you step out onto the field. You know what happens when you have guys that agree but don't really want to play. Because what you have in the end of it all is you're kind of out there with your gun shooting and a bunch of guys are going to get hit. Well, listen, Jesus went about and he went about teaching. He went about preaching and teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing. In that chapter, by the way, Mark 16, where it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He does say this. He says, and these signs will follow you. Listen, these signs will follow you. He doesn't say, and you'll do these signs. He says, these signs will follow. God says, you bring the message. I'll bring the miracles. That's not the part that's your responsibility. Your part is to go and get the message out. I'll back it up in a way to confirm it. That's what a sign is. A sign without a message is a wall. Let's be honest. A sign has to have a message or it's not a sign. And here Jesus is doing that. But here's the most amazing thing as we get ready to wrap this up. He is teaching in their synagogues. He is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He is healing every sickness and every disease from among the people. There's nothing too too hard for him. And yet, strangely enough, that wasn't enough. Wouldn't that be enough? I mean, teaching and preaching and healing. What an amazing ministry that would be. People are getting instructed, they're getting equipped, they're getting built up. People are getting saved, they're being transformed. Physical needs are being met. People are growing arms and legs, blind people are seeing, deaf people are, are hearing, mute people are speaking. What's missing? Notice Jesus says, but when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep with no shepherd. You see, even with all of that, they still needed a shepherd. Even though they had received the teaching, even though they knew clearly choices were to be made, even though they were receiving God's healing, they were still weary. Because somewhere in it all, they needed to be in a place where they could be safe. And Jesus looks, you know, the most interesting thing is Jesus knows who the good shepherd is. That's him. But he's looking at his guys and he's going, I'm raising you up to be shepherds. Not just teachers, not just healers, not just preachers. I'm raising you up to be shepherds. If I am going to grow to become like Jesus, I have to become a shepherd. Now, that doesn't mean you have to become and take the role of a pastor. You will become one, though. Any man who's a husband better be a pastor. 
Any man who's a father better be a pastor because it is his responsibility to be one in that household. God makes that clear. Listen, listen, we're almost done here, so stick with me. We've only got a few minutes left. In the gospel, if you will, of 1 John, in the, the, the letter of 1 John, just a few books before the book of Revelation, John writes this, and he puts people into three categories of men. He says, listen, I write to you children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I get that. I write to you young men because you are strong. I write to you fathers because you've known him who was from the beginning. Oh, I do. I've written to you children because you have known, you know God. If you know the Father. Now, I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the wicked one. I write to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. Same for both, for the fathers. Notice it doesn't say children, young men, old men. Did you notice that? It says children, young men, fathers. See, God intends for every one of us as we mature to become fruitful. We don't just get old, we get fruitful. Lives change because of what God's done in our lives. That's the beauty in this. And understand what Jesus is saying. He's looking at these guys and he's going, look at, I'm not just here to give you information so ultimately you can turn around and teach. So ultimately you can turn around and preach. So ultimately you can even do something really cool and lay hands on someone and they grow a leg. Hey, that would be cool. But if that's as far as it gets, you'll have a bunch of people who are weary because what they need is someone to love them. That's the problem here. So listen, Ezekiel 34, it says this, starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you don't feed the flock. And he says, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those that were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back the driven away, nor sought the lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered throughout all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and nobody was seeking them. Nobody was searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my flock became prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search out for my flock, but the shepherds just fed themselves and didn't feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against the shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep. And the shepherds shall feed themselves no more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And as the shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places which they were scattered on that cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out. Verse 14 says, I will feed them with good pasture. Verse 15, I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down. Verse 16, I will seek what was lost, bring back that which was driven away. 
Bind up that which was broken. Strengthen that which was sick. But destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And understand, I understand why there is such an opposition when Jesus says then in John 10 verses 11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. Not a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. Because the good shepherd is God. Now please hear me in this. Today, in this room, Jesus turns and he says, hey, do you want to go to the harvest at all? Do you want that kind of greatness? Do you want to see lives transformed? Do you, if Jesus asking, do you want to be like me? Well, if so, know this. I'm going to give you the heart of a shepherd then. To lead, guide, guard, love, and feed. That's always been our motto with that. Is that what you want? Or do we want to just sit in the locker room and say, yeah, coach, that looks good. I agree with the play. That probably will work, but plays don't work without players. And there are people out there that I cannot reach that you can. This isn't to lay a burden on you. It's to give you a joy, an opportunity. But please hear me in this. This was the process. Where are you at in it? First, God needs to make you alive. You can't make yourself alive. We are spiritually dead. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? On the way to making you alive, he will cleanse you, just like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. If you have said yes to Jesus, is he opening your eyes? Have you realized that he demands more than just you confess him as Savior, but as Lord? And in confessing him as Lord, he wants to open your eyes. Remember when you saw something for the first time after coming to Jesus and went, how in the world did I ever think anything but this? This is ridiculous. This is foolishness. This is nonsense. Do you remember when you came to Christ and you started seeing things in a very different way? But after that, let me say this. After giving you eyes to see, opening your eyes as he shows himself as your Lord, God's going to deal with the spiritual world and he's going to open your mouth. This is why Jesus says in Acts 1.8 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Not so you can go and break pillars. Not so you can bend bars or blow up hot water bottles. But so that you will be my witnesses. He goes, I know that what you really need is a spiritual power to be witnesses to a world desperate, hear me, not for an argument, but desperate for evidence. And he wants to use you. As we pray now, I want to ask, are you willing to take that next step? Maybe that step is to say yes to Jesus for the first time. Maybe that step is, God, I want to make sure that I'm clear that I have confessed you as Lord. Maybe that step is, Lord, come upon me, not for my own personal gain, but for the purpose of making me the witness you've called me to. Maybe that step is, Lord, make me the shepherd you desire. Send me to the harvest. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text and how clearly you've portrayed your heart in this, how clearly you've portrayed this beautiful process
of, of us needing to receive life. But to do that, we need to be clean. Thank you that you do both. You've not required us to clean up our act. You've required for us to receive the cleansing of your gift, your blood shed for us. Thank you for the new life you offer us that overcomes our death and grants us life now. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin have been made alive, and it is a gift, not a work, but your grace. And I thank you for that. And in this room, if there's anyone to say yes to that gift today, I pray today, Lord, that they would recognize that. You tell us it's your Holy Spirit's job to convict. Well, convict, Holy Spirit. For those who maybe today are trying to set the rules for you, Jesus, somehow in all of this, they don't realize the necessity of calling you Lord. Today, let it be that as you conquer our hearts, that we declare you Lord, and in that, open our eyes to see the things you have for us, that we would follow you, not blindly, but with eyes wide open. And for those today, Lord, who are racked or or riddled with with silence. Their co-workers, their classmates, don't even know that they're Christians. And they beat themselves up over it because they know they should be bold. Show us that boldness is a spiritual matter. And we need your Holy Spirit to come upon us to be able to see you use us in ways so transforming. So here, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, within this voice, if you're not sure if you've ever accepted Jesus Christ's gift at the cross to give you life, to cleanse you, if today you recognize that you really need to declare him as Lord and not just Savior, for that matter, I want to pray a prayer and listen. And if you agree at the end, and you know that needs to be my prayer, well then, we're going to say, Jesus, you're Lord, amen. So at least you know where we're going with it. And then we'll pray another prayer, a prayer asking for God by his Holy Spirit to come upon us to make us bold witnesses in our world around us. So here's our first prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I am filthy in my sin and guilt and shame. But that doesn't scare you because you love me. Because you love me, Father, and in heaven, you sent your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me. And as he died on the cross, my price was paid and his blood was shed and his blood is here to cleanse me of all of that filth and shame and guilt. And as he died on the cross and my price was paid, you've given me a choice to make. And that choice is to say yes to that gift on my behalf or not. And I say yes, please wash me clean and present me innocent before you at the price of your son. And just as Scripture promised on the third day, he rose again. And as he rose again, I I say yes to his lordship because I want him to be the reinventor of my life. I want him to be the one now that transforms me so that I'm not just going back to my old ways. And in that, please open my eyes to see the call you place on my life. So here I am, I'm yours, and I say yes to you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, we say, Jesus, you're Lord. Amen. Are you with me? Jesus, you are Lord. Amen. And Lord, even right now in this room, 
for those who have said yes, declared you as Lord. We recognize, God, that boldness is a spiritual matter. And as boldness is a spiritual matter, we need your Holy Spirit to come upon us to get us over ourselves. So here in this room, we say yes, Lord, not for our own personal aggrandizement, not so that we can look awesome in the sight of people, but rather so that you could use us as your mouthpiece and display us as your evidence in a world whose jury is still out about who you are, that they would turn to you and in turning to you, that they would receive that life. And so here we ask, even now, come upon us for your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, I pray that as you come upon us, as you fill us and as you empower us for your will, give us your heart. Make us the shepherds you desire us to be and send us to the harvest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.